You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is episode 118 of Lighthearted, and this is May 9th, 2021. I want to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day. And uh, as our listeners know, we talk about all kinds of things related to lighthouses on this podcast. Today uh, will be something completely different, to paraphrase Monty Python. Uh, We're going to be talking with two guests about the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society, a very interesting organization. We'll explain more about that in a minute. But first, uh, what's happened on this date uh, in history, Cindy? Well, Jeremy, my late maternal grandmother was born on May 9th, 1915. Mm. It's also a big date in American lighthouse history. On May 9th, 1939, President Franklin D. Roosevelt announced Reorganization Plan 2, under which the Bureau of Lighthouses in the Commerce Department was consolidated with the Coast Guard under the Treasury Department. The consolidation was carried out on July 1st, 1939. From the time a federal lighthouse establishment was created in 1789 until 1939, lighthouse keepers were civilian employees of the federal government. After the reorganization, the keepers could quit or retire, or they could remain a civilian keeper until retirement, or they could transfer into the Coast Guard. Keepers who transferred were given a petty officer rank that equaled the pay they were drawing as civilian keepers. The Coast Guard remains the manager of our aids to navigation system, although many of the lighthouse structures themselves have been transferred to new stewards. On May 9, 1949, the singer-songwriter Billy Joel was born in the Bronx, New York. He once joined Paul Simon for a concert to raise money for the preservation of Montauk Lighthouse, not far from his home on Long Island. Billy Joel once said, quote, if you are not doing what you love, you are wasting your time, unquote. Well, it took me a a while in my life, but I'm doing what I love, so I feel very lucky. So, as I said in today's episode, we're going to discuss the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society, or ARLHS, with two guests, John Huggins and Dan Romanchik. Cindy, can you help me explain what the ARLHS is? I sure can. The Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society, or ARLHS, was formed in 2000. The ARLHS is devoted to maritime communications, amateur radio, lighthouses, and lightships. Its members travel to lighthouses around the world where they operate amateur radio equipment at or near the light stations. Collecting lighthouse QSLs is popular for some amateur radio operators. A QSL card is a written confirmation of a two-way radio communication with a third-party listener. Other goals of the ARLHS include working to increase public awareness of the role ham radio and lighthouses have played in assisting and maintaining safety at sea, aiding with the preservation of lighthouses, and fostering camaraderie and fellowship among ham radio operators nationally and internationally. A convention is held every year. Other benefits of membership in the ARLHS include a newsletter, special certificates, and more. John Huggins is an electrical engineer living in Virginia. He has experience in astronomy, aerospace, and the radio communication field, and he reviews and writes about antennas and other technical topics in various online publications. John became the president of the ARLHS in 2016. I spoke with John Huggins recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. 
I'm speaking today with John Huggins, who is the president of the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. Uh, so how are things going in Virginia today, John? Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Things in Virginia? Well, we're a suburb of Washington, D.C., so we're used to the traffic. It's coming uh, strong again as everyone gets past the uh, the issues of 2020. Uh-huh. But it's very lovely out here in Fauquier County, and uh, we're doing very well. Good. Well, thank you so much for being with me. We have a beautiful uh, spring-like day here on the New Hampshire seacoast. I just went out for a walk. It's, it's gorgeous out, so... Spring has definitely sprung. Before we get into uh, talking about the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society, I, I just want to mention that uh, you know I have no background on the subject, but when I was a kid, uh, the older brother of a good friend of mine was a ham radio operator, and we used to watch him doing his uh, ham radio thing, and it seemed very exciting and mysterious. I never did it myself, but uh, you know, growing up near Boston, I was always very excited when I had one of those little transistor radios. And I would be really excited when it picked up stations in New York City or maybe Montreal, other places in Canada. So uh, maybe that wasn't that different in a way, maybe sort of. But anyway, let me just start by asking you uh, when and how was the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society created? A fellow by the name of Jen Weidner, who was an amateur radio operator, a boater and lighthouse aficionado, uh, decided to kind of join those interests in around 2000. He created the ARLHS in its original form, along with several other dedicated folks, basically to just provide a, a focus point where people can get together and, and activate lighthouses by putting them on the air temporarily with uh, portable or mobile operations and bring awareness to the history and the maritime history and those people involved in it over the centuries to kind of a, as a tribute to them Hams do this with a variety of different avenues, uh, various uh, topics. You know, someone's on the air, parks on the air, and this is lighthouses on the air. So the organization exists to organize that in a sufficient way to basically allow people to do this without having to reinvent another wheel. So we have maintained a world list of lights, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, it's one of the most comprehensive lighthouse lists in the world for any topic. We created it specifically to provide a unique and short mnemonic that can be relayed via radio easily if it's marginal conditions and the name of the lighthouse might be hard to convey across the static. So that's, that's the creation of it. And I came along a little bit later because my interests also merge on those, those topics. I uh, am more of a technically oriented fellow. So I took up the charge of managing the world list of lights while Jim basically managed the society in its original form. He eventually passed on, and before he did, just to make sure that it would keep on, he, he conveyed the society to my care. That's the history at the moment. Mm -hmm. That was, what, approximately five years ago you became the uh, president? 2016, right? about. Mm -hmm. He was uh, ill for quite some time, but quite cogent, and uh, was able to to basically foster a way to keep it going without him being at the wheel. Yeah. So uh, going back a bit, how did you first get interested in ham radio? Well, there's no doubt that I'm a technically oriented fellow. So the technical aspects of amateur radio and electrical engineering go hand in hand. But my story goes a little bit differently. My father was a radio man for the Army Air Corps in World War II. It was interesting growing up. Most of my friends had fathers that were in Vietnam, but mine was a World War II vet specifically the radio aspect. 
he could do Morse code and receive it at 40 words per minute, all because of his wartime chores that he had to do. He was never technically competent enough to become a ham, though. He always wanted to be. You can say that partly as an interest in electronics, but partly as a sort of a tribute to my father, I became a ham when I was in college. I had always wanted to be one through high school. And that's really how it is. It's a tribute to my father, mostly. Mm -hmm. And uh, you already mentioned how you got involved with the uh, Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society, but I'm wondering, uh, were lighthouses an interest of yours? Is that partly what led you to it, by any chance? Yes. So among vacationing in Maine, as well as vacationing in the Outer Banks, North Carolina, lighthouses have always been a part of my life, I guess. And so there's always been this interest in them, technically, their history, everything. I photographed them. I'm sure you have lots of people who like lighthouses for a variety of different reasons. I'm simply another one of those. And when the lighthouse aspect and the amateur radio aspect joined together, well, that was a fit for me. Yeah, I can understand that. It's a pretty, pretty cool combination. Between the Outer Banks and Maine, there's some very picturesque lighthouses that sit in your memory once you've seen them, as you know. Oh, yeah. You're not going to get an argument from me. Uh, I was reading there are more than 2,000 members of the ARLHS. That's really impressive. So how does someone become a member? Well, the 2,000 number has been the member since its inception. You know, we, we don't have that many at any one time. When Jim ran the operation, he, would, he was a printer by trade. And so he would develop these wonderful newsletters, and he would mail them to everyone at great expense. He was very dedicated to the task, and he used his trade to, uh, to produce a good result. Membership these days is very simple. You go to the website, and there's a, a PayPal link. You can pay your dues right then and there. If you are already a member, you'll simply renew. Or if you're not, you'll become a new member, and you'll get your own unique ARLHS member number. Mine is 635. We're up to about 2060 now as the number of members that have, have come online. Joining the society is very simple. All mm -hmm. you have to do is have a, an interest and preferably be an amateur radio operator, although that's not necessarily a requirement, but most people are. Sure. So uh, we'll talk about the website a little more in a while, but I'll just, since you just mentioned it, I just want to mention it's arlhs.com, right? arlhs.com. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that shortly, but Speaking of the membership again, and I uh, assume that the vast majority of the members are in the U.S., but are there members in other countries also? Yes, there are. It's a minority, but they're growing. I computed just a, a few minutes ago, about 19% are non-U.S. members. That includes Canadians. North Americans certainly dominate just because of the local nature of it. But we are on the rise of interest in the world, uh, especially in Indonesia and in India. Hmm. There's a growing technical community there. Ham radio becomes a part of that. And again, the joining of that and maritime interests seems to be growing there as well. So they look to the world list of lights as a reasonably good resource to use for their reference. Mm -hmm. And so they often join or help out or giving notices, uh, updates, like where the lighthouses are or were. We, we get updates all the time for uh, geographic improvement. Europe has a presence in our roster, but it's the far-flung countries that seem to really be coming on strong. Hmm. That's neat. Uh, of course, uh, Indonesia and India certainly have a lot of lighthouses. A lot of history yeah. to them. 
So uh, let's get to the, the basics of uh, what, what people do. Uh, first of all, what does it mean to activate a lighthouse? Amateur radio operators frequently will have special event stations to commemorate some sort of aspect that they are interested in. Like, for example, a historic battleship that's moored permanently as a museum. Sometimes they'll board the ship, get permission, activate it, and make it available to amateurs to make contact with so that they can get some, a QSL card with a picture and kind of have a, a tie in with that particular piece of history. So lighthouses are no exception. People will go and activate the lighthouses by setting up a station in or near the lighthouse, following their rules, of course, and just make it available for people to uh, make contact with. We do have a robust cadre of people who chase lighthouses. So they're sitting at home and they like to collect QSL cards from the people who activate the lighthouses. QSL cards being, of course, the paper that has the, the details, the name of the lighthouse, the uh, world list of lights, number, time, band, etc. That's the, the piece of uh, evidence that uh, confirms that the contact actually happened. And a lot of the activators will go to great lengths to put in a beautiful picture of the lighthouse as they were there and make the QSL a little more special. Now, this all sounds a bit trite, perhaps, but, you know, paper chasing is, is, is a still fun thing for uh, amateur radio operators and trading QSLs with lighthouses is just yet another aspect people enjoy the activity. This is not unlike other activities like summits on the air where people go and activate peaks or parks on the air, which was inspired just a couple of years ago. And that's become really, really popular. And meanwhile, the amateur radio lighthouse aspect continues to churn and make a lot of happy people. By the way, uh, I'm involved with Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse about 10 minutes from my home here. And uh, my first experience with all this was when somebody operated from there. I think it was more than 10 years ago now. I think it's actually happened a couple of times, but I was present uh, for, for one of those times and somebody was, was uh, broadcasting. Go there ahead. is often a good marriage, if you will, for people who are trying to preserve a lighthouse and then an amateur radio operator activating it and bringing awareness to it. Uh, sometimes that can help promote the, the goal of doing whatever it takes to make the lighthouse stay in good shape. Mm -hmm. That's a good cause. Uh, and I'll just mention that this is the 250th anniversary this year at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. So we have some special events planned and maybe somebody would be interested in uh, setting up radio there uh, around the time of the anniversary, which is the actual day is June 8th. Uh, but um, it's on a Coast Guard station there. So there are some limitations, but I think uh, arrangements could probably be made. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. I think that's a grand idea. I can put it out to our email reflector and we'll see what happens. Sounds like a, sounds like a plan. We'll trade like details it. later with the details, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it sounds, uh, sounds a lot of fun to me. Uh, so I was reading a little bit of biographical material about you, and I read that you've been involved in the design of antennas and other radio equipment. Have you developed any equipment that kind of lends itself to use at lighthouses? I have. Uh, there is one specific design designed for portable operations, portable meaning away from permanent infrastructure like a tower or whatever. Uh, it's called the Asymmetrical Hatted Vertical Dipole, or AHVD for short. It's completely freestanding. It's full-sized antenna, no compromised shortened elements, which reduce the efficiency. 
but as a consequence of that, there's a size limit. It only works on the upper HF bands, 14 megahertz and up. That would be the 20 meters, 17, 15, 12, and 10 meters, which is basically 14 to 28 megahertz. No supports required, sits on a tripod. It tunes perfectly to 50 ohms for those who are attaching radios will know what that means. It's a perfect SWR for the band of choice, not all bands at once, but one at a time. And details of that, including a couple of beach socks when I've used it, are available on my technical blog, www.hamradio.me. I'm going to ask you to repeat that, that website. It's www.hamradio.me. Okay. So uh, getting back to uh, operating at lighthouses and your, your personal experience, I'm wondering if you've had any experiences yourself related to operating from lighthouses that have been maybe especially memorable? I can't say that a, an activation comes to mind. I have certainly visited many lighthouses. The one of most note was up on Long Island. Montauk? No, he did go and visit that, of course, but this was on the northern shore of it, a ways in. I can't quite remember the name of it, but it was one of these things where it was literally a little teeny sign at the side of the road that said Lighthouse. Hmm. And my friend basically going on a tour of New England. We said, let's turn. Mm-hmm. And we go in there and, and we find this little, it, it's not like a mainline shore station like Montauk. It's it's a, a much smaller affair on top of a cliff. Horton Point. Yeah, I, I know think that's it, what yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. And it was undergoing a uh, reconstruction to put it back to the way it was back mm-hmm. in the day. And if I remember right, the Coast Guard had moved its light off of the, the structure since they fixed the structure up, they moved it back into the lighthouse. So they were very happy. That was very cool. Nothing to do with amateur radio specifically, but a lighthouse aspect. Well, my passion with the ARLHS is to maintain the infrastructure behind the scenes, such as the databases, the websites, and all these good things that have to be made running. So I'm not particularly active in the actual activation, except on occasion. I hope when we go to the beach in July, is mm-hmm. where we're going. I'll be able to activate one of the Outer Banks lighthouses. There's four big lighthouses on the Outer Banks. It's always good. And I haven't been to that one in years, so I will attempt to activate it finally. Yeah. Uh, I believe Cape Hatteras is closed for a while, the lighthouse, for some work that's going on there. So I would say cool. that that's the one that got me going in lighthouse mm-hmm. interest, that and Bodie Island. Ah, okay. Those are great, great lighthouses. So we're actually speaking in early April, although people are going to be hearing this a little bit later. And I was looking at the website, the ARLHS website, and I see there's a Spring Lights QSO party coming up uh, later this month uh, in April. That'll be passed by the time people hear this, but I'm curious about what that is. Uh, What's that all about? Well, first and foremost, Amateur Radio Lighthouse events, it's pretty much a year-round affair. People activate when they can, but we do have a few focus times each year, three of them. Uh, one of them is spring events. It's sort of to get out of winter and go do something. So we call it spring lights. Uh, this was created by Jim Weidner back in the day when he originally created the, the society. And of course there's Christmas lights, yet another focused event sort of during the holidays. And then in August, there's the National Lighthouse Day when we have a United States event to coincide with the National Lighthouse Day in the early August. And then there's also a worldwide event, not run by the ARLHS, but a group out of the UK. And we fully integrate with that. A lot of our members do both. 
spring lights like every other event is just a time where some people who don't operate a lot they can focus their efforts on a particular week mm -hmm. and of, of the of the year and, and get more participation in it than usual during the whole summer you'll find lighthouse activations all summer long as people take their vacations when they can yeah people do like to have you know some people don't have a lot of time so they'll just focus on the major events so we have them to put on the calendar sure if nothing else it's a pretty good tool to make awareness of the amateur radio lighthouse society on the air to other hams who may have never even heard about us they'll hear us calling cq on the, the bands and like what's going on there so you mentioned the uh, national lighthouse day event in august anything else you want to add about that it's august 7th i believe is national lighthouse day yes congress did create that date to honor the memory of the maritime history of the united states with the creation of national lighthouse day it's august 7th i believe and we time our national lighthouse event to coincide with that date so sometimes we it's a weekend event so sometimes it's the weekend before august 7th of the weekend after we make a call as we do our planning so you know it's a u.s specific kind of thing and then we do the international one the third week of august which is the event i mentioned about run out of the uk so for people who are into amateur radio and lighthouses august is a busy month i'll just mention i think a lot of our listeners probably know that the reason august 7th is national lighthouse day is that august 7th 1789 was the date the first congress set up the uh the first, uh, the beginning of a federal lighthouse service, basically. In 1989, Congress passed a proclamation that August 7th that year would be National Lighthouse Day. It's not officially recognized each year by the federal government, but a lot of people are pushing for that, but it is observed by a lot of, a lot of lighthouse organizations every year on August 7th. And you mentioned a few minutes ago also that there's a, an event around the Christmas holiday. Uh, anything uh, particular you'd like to add about that one? It's just a being a celebratory time of the year. People like to to get on the air and activate lighthouses in the chilly times. So a lot of times, what you'll see is people will operate from their mobile radios in their cars. It's a little more low key. Mm -hmm. There's not as much activity then as there is in spring lights or in the summertime, but it is nonetheless something that Jim created, and I continue to honor that and keep it on the on the calendar. Seems like uh, there might be more activity in the southern states for that event rather than in the, the northern states, like uh, maybe more in Florida than up the main coast. Yeah, I don't have the details for that. Um, I'm one to like cold weather operating. I did activate a lighthouse not too far away from my mother in Belfast, Maine. And it's uh, always cold there in the <laughs> yes it in, is in fact the, the front picture on the ARLHS.com website is of that lighthouse. Okay, I don't have it in front of me right now. Could it be Fort Point Lighthouse? Which that is, is that's it. Okay, that's correct. It's not the most dramatic main lighthouse, but it's it's got a lot of the right components for me. Yes, I totally including agree. a foghorn and a bell. I think. Yeah, it's got an old fog bell, which is really cool. Uh, the old bell tower, which not many places have, and uh, someplace I've visited many many times over the years, and it is uh, pretty close to Belfast in a little little town of Stockton Springs. Moving on on other related subjects, I, I was seeing that there's a, a bunch of uh, awards that members of the society can earn. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? What, what are some of those awards? One of the pastimes of amateur radio operators, at least for some of them, is to collect wallpaper. They like to, to achieve certain goals and get a little certificate for their efforts. And we've fulfilled that dream for the many who still like to collect that. 
uh, activator award, activator of the year award for someone who's activated the most lighthouses. That's certainly worthy of recognition. Uh, the best chaser sits in their home and, and tallies up a, a lot of lighthouse contacts and things like that. So uh, our awards manager is, is frequently updating uh, the various uh, awards you can get and you can get silver, gold, silver, and bronze, depending on what achievement you've made. So he's done a very good job of, of keeping that up. People have to submit some sort of evidence of the contacts that they make with a particular lighthouse to collect these awards. Those are the QSL cards that I mentioned. Uh, once upon a time, we would only take the actual hard copy of the QSL card. And that could take a long time to get, especially for international contacts. Now, things are more electronic than they used to be. So we'll accept photocopies of some sort of evidence of a lighthouse contact for these awards. So that's a very popular aspect of this. And we've made this much more electronic now than we ever have in the past. So we've reduced the costs and burden. So therefore, the club dues can be a lot less money. It's working very well. So uh, you mentioned the website before, but what else, uh, what other uh, information is available on that website at arlhs.com? If you're brand new to the society, you can go there and find out what it's about. We do have news and articles as they come available. It's not as up to date as some other websites with their periodicals, but you can find out the events, the details of the events, such as spring lights, Christmas lights, etc. There's a link to the Beacon Bot. That is a email reflector run at an amateur radio site. That's very important. That's very popular and very busy. So all the lighthouse chasers and activators basically congregate there and, and trade information. There's contact information and, of course, the awards we just spoke of. There's a list of awards there and then links to the World List of Lights. Glad you mentioned the beacon bot. I was looking at that and uh, meant to ask you about that. So glad you mentioned that. And uh, speaking of the world list of lights, you mentioned earlier that it's one of the most comprehensive list of lists of lighthouses anywhere. Uh, I think it's uh, probably goes back to the beginnings of the organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, uh, the world list of lights? When it began, the society maintained the world list of lights on an Excel database, an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they would frequently publish that information as sort of a, a print to PDF sort of thing on their website. When I joined the society, I volunteered to turn that into an active database online uh, website using my skills in that particular aspect. And so what you see today, wlol.arlhs.com is that website as I created it. Gosh, um, it was in the, not long after 2000. So I made it so that it was searchable, findable on Google, and a little more user-friendly than sort of a static printout, if you will. And then eventually, it became successful enough that that became the primary database as opposed to the secondary copy. And so we use that database now to maintain the details of the, the lighthouses, add to it. We have an entire committee that's dedicated to doing nothing more than accepting an application for a new light, reviewing it, and saying yay or nay, depending on our particular rules of what can be in the WLOL. I do have the ability for people to update the coordinates of a particular light if we've got something incorrect. The original list was made to include a lighthouse, even if we didn't know exactly where it was. 
but we knew it to some precision. But as the years have gone by, people will will refine those coordinates and I'll get a, a, an email about that and I can go in there and review it to make sure it's, it's good and uh, say yay or nay on that. So the list itself is becoming technically more accurate as time goes by through the efforts of the volunteers as well as the people who visit the site. So it's very much a community resource, I'm very proud of it. It's over 15,000 lights listed. Mm. What we consider to be a light is a little more generous than what other folks might do, but uh, we, we lean towards accepting a light than rejecting it, even if it's not much more than a pole with a light on it. Mm -hmm. One of our goals is to, to make sure that the opportunity for people to participate in our activities includes having access to a light as near to them as possible. That means being more inclusive to even the smaller lights. The light has to have been an aid to navigation to be included, so a faux light that's nothing more than a, an interesting thing to see. They don't count. Uh, if a light has been at a place and has moved, we'll record that as an historic position, as one place, and then as a museum position at the new place with the mm. same basic numbered, kind of tie it together. So that little bit of history is, is good to incorporate into basically the database. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're trying to preserve history as best we can. You know, sometimes it's more of a challenge. Some lights have existed in three or four different forms on the same site. Then yep. you have the question of, do we, do we honor the building or the location? You know, our committee will hem and haw on every application to, to figure out what is the best for a particular uh, mm -hmm. uh, circumstance. Yeah. So I would say that the World List of Lights is probably the finest product that comes out of the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. And it's not just for amateur radio operators. So the value of the, that world list of lights goes way beyond the scope of uh, radio operating. I know it's a valuable tool. And you mentioned uh, over 15,000 entries in there. You know, as people ask me sometimes, how many lighthouses are there in the world? And I usually say there's at least 10 to 15,000, but nobody, nobody can answer that, that question. And as you said, there's a lot of disagreement about what constitutes a lighthouse exactly. There's, you know, no, no two people agree on that. Uh, I don't worry too much about it. If it's an aid, if it was built as an aid to navigation and kind of looks like a lighthouse, it's a it's a lighthouse to me. But if it little skeleton tower with a light on it, mm, not so sure. But and we would probably include that. Case in point, down in the Chesapeake Bay, we have these skeleton towers all over the place that have a light on top. Mm -hmm. But what people don't remember is that there used to be a Chesapeake style lighthouse on top of that. Right. Screw so that's pile. the history yeah. we're trying to preserve, even though today it looks like it's just an over-engineered mount for a light bulb. Yeah, yeah. It was actually one of those uh, kind of Chesapeake-style cottage uh, screw pile lighthouses in Boston Harbor that now has a little steel skeleton tower on it. So uh, yeah, it's a lighthouse location. Not sure I'd call that thing that's there now a lighthouse, but <laughs> right. It is a yeah. For, for us, it's it's what it was as a in addition to what it is. Sure, sure. Makes a lot of sense. So I have one final question for you, John. For This is for bonus points. Okay, so put your thinking cap on. So what do you enjoy most personally about your involvement with the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society? Well, I'm always interested in becoming more of an activator. I'm actually working on a mobile setup for my car to so I can go and activate more readily without having to set up portable gear. Just makes it a little more easier. So that is nice, but I, I want to say the World List of Lights maintenance and creation of the database is probably my 
favorite thing about this. As the president of the ARLHS, you know, you'd think I would sit here and drink coffee and and uh, sort of be on top of it all, but I'm the kind of like the guy in the engine room that the mate will introduce you to me. I'll be underneath the engine covered in oil. <laughs> That's where I'm at, maintaining the infrastructure behind the scenes so that others can simply enjoy using the resources that are portrayed on the websites. Business management, I guess, if you want to call it that, but it, it, it's, it's very fun and very rewarding. That's a great analogy. I love that. Some of us need to be in the, the trenches getting covered in oil. It's, uh, it's necessary and it, it can be, be fun in its own way, of course. So uh, before we wrap up, let me just say again, of course, the, the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society website is arlhs.com, as we've mentioned a few times. And again, how do people access the world list of lights again? That is a subdomain is wlol.arlhs.com. Mm -hmm. But there are links from the main site all sure. over the place. Okay. And your personal website again is? My electronics blog and ham radio blog is www.hamradio.me. Okay. All right. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested in, in looking at that as well. So, John Huggins, this is all extremely interesting. And even, uh, you know, I'm sure we have some ham radio operators among our, our listeners. But uh, as you said, the world list of lights is of value to everyone. And uh, I just think it's a, a really interesting subject. And I very much appreciate you spending this time with me today. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. We're going to hear another interview related to the ARLHS. Dan Romanchik was born in Detroit and has lived on both coasts. He's been living in Ann Arbor, Michigan since 1985. Dan has been an electronics engineer, a software developer, an engineering manager, a writer, blogger, and editor, a teacher and trainer, and a website developer. Dan has written a series of books called The No-Nonsense Amateur Radio License Study Guides, along with The CW Geek's Guide to Having Fun with Morse Code. He also has a popular blog on all aspects of ham radio operating, and he offers training programs on a variety of topics, including amateur radio license classes, basic electronics, and writing for engineers and entrepreneurs. Dan has been involved with the ARLHS in recent years, and uh, I recently had a chance to speak with them. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with Dan Romanchik, who is in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we're going to be talking about the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. I'm here at my home on Seacoast, New Hampshire. It's like 50 mile hour winds outside in case people hear any wind roaring in the background. I hope it's uh, nicer where you are, Dan. Oh, it's beautiful here today. Sunny and about 45 degrees. So thanks so much for, for joining me today. So let's just start by going to the beginning. It's a good place to start. How and when did you get interested in ham radio? Well, I've been a ham radio operator a really long time now. And, and even before I got uh, interested in ham radio per se, I was interested in listening to shortwave radio. My grandparents had an old Philco console radio in their basement. I used to love going over there. I, mean, I might be the only kid you knew that liked going to his grandparents' house uh, because I could go downstairs and listen to shortwave radio and hear radio station from all over the world. And then uh, as I got older, uh, I sort of transitioned into ham radio, although I still like to listen to shortwave radio from time to time. I remember being a kid and just being excited at hearing a, occasionally a, a Montreal radio station coming in. I, I live near Boston, so that was pretty yeah. exciting. 
not as exciting as what you experienced. So I'm wondering how you got involved with the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. Were lighthouses an interest of yours before that? Well, you know, being from Michigan, you kind of grow up with lighthouses, right? You know, Michigan has the most lighthouses of any state in the U.S. And uh, so I suppose uh, that I have a little more interest in lighthouses than the average Michigander, but I'm still, still was always interested in them. One thing that's happened in amateur radio over the past 10 years or so is that amateur radio equipment has gotten smaller and lighter, making it easier to take a station with you when you go traveling or, you know, just head outdoors, go camping or something. So as a result, uh, many amateurs have taken up this part of the hobby. And, uh, you know, so in addition to lighthouses, you know, many uh, guys now uh, operate from state and national parks. So there's an organization called Parks on the Air. And then there's a group that enjoys operating from up in the mountains. They have a group called Summits on the Air. But since I'm interested in lighthouses, I do the lighthouse thing with the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. So that's that's sort of how it how it worked. It's two two prong thing. I wonder if you can explain the basics of how how it all works. What typically takes place when members of the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society operate from lighthouses? For example, my, uh, what I take when I go is a radio called the Elecraft KX3, and this uh, radio measures like four inches by eight inches by two inches, so it's very small, weighs just over a pound but yet allows me to talk with people all over the place. Um, I throw up an antenna up in a tree. You know, using that station, I can I can talk to other ham radio operators. And so, you know, what we do really is we just go out there, like I say, set up, and we just try and make as many contacts as we can. We'll sometimes call CQ lighthouse. We say CQ. We One of the things we do is call CQ. That means you want to talk to any other station out there. And so sometimes we'll call CQ Lighthouse, and other people that are interested in talking to people at lighthouses will be listening for that, and then call us back and we'll just talk with them. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. just that's just basically it, just making contacts from lighthouses. So at any given time, are there many people actually doing this from lighthouses? Well, I'd say you know every weekend, uh, you know, especially when the weather's nice, uh, you know, there'll be a couple dozen of people out there. We're trying to you know, make this a little bit more um, popular activity among ham radio operators. Yeah, right now about there's probably about several dozen of us on any hmm. given weekend. Yeah. I've only seen this actually in operation myself once here at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, 10 minutes from my home here. And it was probably 10 or so years ago at least. And the equipment certainly wasn't that small. <laughs> Is that a pretty new development? It's getting smaller all the time? Well, like I said, this this started happening right around 10 years ago. This company, Elecraft, was one of the pioneers of it. And uh, the founders actually were uh, hikers. They're from California. They were hikers. And they started developing these small radios to take with them on their hikes. And that sort of... Uh, you know, snowballed from there. They were then, in addition to being hikers and ham radio operators, they're talented electrical engineers, and so they were able to design these radios that were, you know, made for this kind of operation. And and as a result, uh, several other companies have jumped on the bandwagon now. So, uh, uh, folks that want to operate from parks or lighthouses have a have a really a big selection of radios to choose from. The battery technology has gotten much better too. 
And, and that's a big thing because we're operating off of batteries. And especially if you're hiking somewhere, uh, you don't want a big old heavy battery. So now a, a, a number of very lightweight batteries are available. And um, uh, that's that's been a real boon as well for ham radio operators. I think it would be a lighthouse is because not every lighthouse has uh, electrical outlets you can plug into. So right, that gives you right. a, a real advantage. You want to be as self-contained as possible. I know every lighthouse situation is different. Some have keepers houses, some don't. But is it typically done inside or outside? If possible, we like to do it outside. You know, there might be a gazebo nearby that you can operate from. When I've been out, the weather's generally been pretty nice. So I just set up a folding table under a tree and operate from there. Sure. So you mentioned uh, people operate from mountains and, and parks and stuff. Would you say there's something special about operating from a lighthouse for you as compared to other environments like that? Uh, sure. You know, because I'm interested in lighthouses and the history of lighthouses, you know, it's sort of a historical thing, right? I, I can operate and then learn more about the lighthouse. One of my favorite lighthouses here in Michigan is the Point O'Bark Lighthouse in the Thumb. I'm actually a member of that lighthouse society there and, you know, just helping them keep that lighthouse uh, in good shape is, is, you know, part of it too. Sure. So when you've uh, operated at a lighthouse, what would be uh, the farthest away you're able to, to actually communicate with somebody? Well, you know, a lot of it depends on the radio conditions, the radio propagation conditions. Theoretically, we could talk to anywhere all, all over the world. I'll give you an example. Uh, last summer, I was at the Point of Bark Lighthouse. I was able to contact stations in Europe. And um, there, was a, there was a guy in Hawaii who I could hear his signal, but because I was operating fairly low power, he could just barely hear me. He never quite made out my call sign. So that, that wasn't a... you in, a, in amateur radio, you have to actually be able to exchange call signs to make a uh, an official contact. So you couldn't say that was an official contact, but he, I mean, he could hear me in Hawaii. So that's pretty far away. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Do you have any other, especially memorable experiences when you've operated a lighthouse? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I was at, uh, at this point of arc lighthouse again, and, uh, I was there on, uh, uh, the national lighthouse weekend. I happened to contact this fellow in uh, Grand Marais, Minnesota, which is right on Lake Superior. And uh, we had a, a long chat. And as it turned out, and if, by the way, we were doing this all in Morse code. I'm a big Morse code operator. As it turned out, he he had exactly the same kind of setup that I had. I, I was set up at a folding table looking out over Lake Huron. The weather was beautiful. And as it turned out, he was he had a very similar setup up in the, up in the uh, off Lake Superior there. And uh, we just uh, had a great chat proclaiming how lucky we are, you know, nice weather, great, great conditions. We, we, I kind of joked, I said, we must be taking advantage of the lake propagation, the, the radio waves, you know, bending around the lakes. Of course, that really wasn't happening, but uh, it was kind of a funny thing to say. Was that the International Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend you're referring to there? No, that was, that no. Was, I was there actually at the National Lighthouse Weekend that, that year. All right. Are you talking about around the National Lighthouse Day, August 7th? Or? Right, right. Yes, okay. Yeah, that's so that's National Lighthouse Day, but there's also something called the International Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend, or ILLW, right? And right. maybe you can clarify that. I know it's not actually part of the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. It's a separate right. organization, right? 
Right. That's a that's a group uh, based out of Europe that sponsors that uh, the International Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend, and that's usually the third weekend in August. And mm-hmm. um, I've, I've taken part in both. In fact, for the International Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend, for several years, I um, I would go over to Canada and operate with a club, a Canadian club that operated from the Point Clark Lighthouse on Lake Huron. Which which is kind of interesting too because mm. it's it's almost due east from from the thumb of Michigan, so if you had head due east from the thumb, you'd hit the Point Clark Lighthouse, and uh, I always enjoyed going over there and uh, operating with those fellows over there. Yeah, I guess there'd be a little problem with that right now until the borders completely open up between the U.S. and Canada. Unfortunately, now you mentioned Point O'Bark. If, if you uh, broadcast from other lighthouses as well, Point Clark, of course, right. So uh, I have th- there's a there's a park in the, sort of the Detroit River called the called Belle Isle. They have a lighthouse there. I did operate from Belle Isle, and mm-hmm. uh, that was fun. One lighthouse that I'm trying to get to is uh, actually on uh, another island in the Detroit River called Gross Eel, but unfortunately that's uh, private land, and so I'm I'm still working on that. But I'd like to I'd like to be able to operate from there too. Again, I, I had big plans for last summer, which unfortunately fell through. There's also a uh, lighthouse uh, up the uh, east coast of Michigan, a place called Towis Point. And uh, I was actually trying to uh, to volunteer as a volunteer lighthouse keeper there. They have a program where you can stay there for a week and give tours and stuff like that. And I was trying to uh, take part in that program, but they canceled it last year. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Tawas Point. I had uh, Laurie Perkins, the director at that lighthouse, uh, on the podcast a few months ago. It's on it's on my bucket list. I haven't been there yet. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you need to take a whole trip around uh, Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, do the whole Great Lakes tour. I have one final question for you. This is for bonus points. What I'm wondering is, I know this is probably hard to put in a few words, but <laughs> what is your favorite part of being a ham radio operator? Well, I, I think one of the things is that it's such a multifaceted hobby. You know, you have the technical side. You, you can build your own equipment. A lot of people build their own antennas. Then you have the operating aspect, you know, being able to go out to a lighthouse or or we have these things called the amateur radio contests where it, it's basically a test of your equipment in a way. You know, you try and make as many contacts you, as you can in a, set, in a short amount of time. Uh, there's a social aspect, you know, a lot of amateur radio operators belong to clubs, you know, some are national, like the amateur radio lighthouse society, some are local, but then you have the international aspect as well. You know, we, we, uh, like to think of ourselves as a, a big fraternity of amateur radio operators. So no matter where you are, you're part of this international fraternity. So I think I, putting all those things together, that, that just makes it a, a great hobby. It sure sounds like like one. I feel like I've I've missed out. But uh, in our introduction, uh, we mentioned uh, you've written several several books. The uh, No Nonsense Amateur Radio License Study Guides. Do I have that right? Right. That's another part of the hobby for me is teaching new hams, and uh, uh, that's what those study guides are a- aimed at. These study guides are aimed at helping uh, new hams get into the hobby, and hams that are already in the hobby learn more about the hobby. Sounds great. And those are available. I know they're available on Amazon because I found them there. And uh, Right. They're available on Amazon or on my website, kb6nu.com. That's my my call sign, kb6nu. kb6nu.com, right? Right. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, Dan Romanchik, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It's an interesting subject that I know too little about, but it's it's fascinating. And I, I hope we can get uh, maybe an, an operator, maybe you at one or more of our local lighthouses here. I hope to uh, learn more about the ARLHS as uh, time goes on and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Thanks so much, Dan. Well, my, my pleasure. And if uh, there are any amateur radio operators listening to this podcast, you can visit us at ARLHS.com. That's our website. Good point. I'm glad you brought that up too. Thank you again, Dan. Take care. See ya. Thanks to our guests today, Dan Romanchik and John Huggins of the Amateur Radio Lighthouse Society. For more on the ARLHS, check out ARLHS.com. And for Dan Romanchik's blog, go to KB6NU.com. I've known about the ARLHS for a long time. It was fun learning more about it. John and Dan were great guests, and I hope we can speak with them again. Thanks, as always, to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its chapters and affiliates. Go to uslhs.org to learn more about everything the Society offers, including tours, the Lighthouse Passport Program, the online research catalog, and more. Donations to the U.S. Lighthouse Society support this podcast and all the preservation and education activities of the Society. This coming Wednesday, May 12th, we'll be releasing a special edition of this podcast featuring an interview with Diane Stampfler about Michigan's haunted lighthouses. I guess it's it's like uh, Halloween and spring here. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Something like that. And next Sunday's episode will focus on one of the best-known lighthouses in the country, Montauk, New York. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Uh